starting in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power, or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather together. We thank you that we can be exhorted by your word before the offering, before we worship, and even now, Father, let us receive those words as they truly are, words from you. And we ask, Father, that you would be with our children now, uh, minister to them, shepherd their hearts. We thank you for events like Rethink, for organizations like Standard Reason, that put on those events um, to minister to people, to teach them the truth. We thank you, God, that you are so good to reveal yourself to us. You reveal yourself to us in nature, and you reveal yourself to us through your word. We thank you that we have your written word, which we can stand on and be confident that we have the true word of God. And we pray, Father, for believers across this country, across this world, Lord. We pray that the believers would continue to stand fast in their faith, Lord. And I include us as well. May we stand and stand fast. That when the tide comes, Lord, we would continue to stand firm in our faith. That you would continue to establish our faith in you, in your Son, on the solid rock. And we ask that you would bless your word as we hear it now. Amen. There's basically two areas that, when it comes to our Christian faith, that we end up standing firm. One area is where the church has historically stood regarding Christian doctrine, what we might call the fundamentals of the faith. In fact, the term fundamentalist, which kind of has a negative connotation now, um, originally just meant someone who believed in the fundamentals of Christianity. Things like the Bible is the Word of God, Jesus is God, um, the substitutionary atonement, basically that Christ died on the cross for the payment for our sins, the virgin birth. There's only about 
uh, five of them or so that were originally considered the fundamentals of the faith, that basically, if you were going to call yourself a Christian, you would subscribe to those fundamentals. Um, it was almost like a litmus test of sorts. So the church historically has stood on those fundamentals going back thousands of years. So if there's been pushback, it comes when we stand firm on those fundamentals. That's one area we can get pushback. So we get pushback because we might stand and say the Bible is the Word of God. We get pushback because we say that Jesus is God. We get pushback because we say we believe that Christ's death was a substitutionary atonement. It literally was an atonement for us. That we needed that. He wasn't, Jesus' death wasn't just like a good example or a model for us to follow or something like that. No, it's a substitutionary atonement. Um, so we get pushed back there. But we also get pushed back <clears throat> when the world, when the culture takes a position that they want to believe in, that they want to champion, and we get pushed back there. For, I don't know, maybe uh, a couple thousand years, the definition of marriage was pretty much kind of set in stone. Uh, no one really debated it. All right. So yes, the, the church had a... Uh, a theology of marriage, and it even taught on the theology of marriage, <clears throat> and it stood on it, but um, there was never any pushback there. Even if you go back just 100 years ago, I mean, maybe even just 50 years ago. But what you've seen is what, what has occurred is that the, the church um, gets pushed back from the culture on areas where the culture thinks that the church is wrong. So then what does the church have to do? I mean, the church has to stand firm on those areas. So, I mean, the major pushback <clears throat> is, in, is in the topic of sexuality. It's in the topic of marriage. It's the LGBTQ and however many other letters you want to add at the end. And they're going to add more, trust me. They will. Uh, but that's where we're getting pushback from the culture. When we get pushback, um, we have to stand firm. Even if it's not a popular thing to do, we have to stand firm. One of the things that we've seen is we have seen people, when they get pushed back from the culture on these areas, believers, people that call themselves believers at least, cave in. They will give. So you've, <clears throat> maybe you've heard of um, popular people who still call themselves Christians, but on this issue of marriage, on this issue of the LGBTQ+, they've, they've changed their position. Um, they're called deconversion stories. So maybe you've heard people say, oh, I used to be a conservative Christian. Or I grew up in a conservative Christian church. You know, dot, 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 and I've changed. This <clears throat> gives someone clout in the eyes of the culture. Because you used to be like those narrow-minded bigoted, conservative Christians. These deconversion stories can be powerful. Uh, Dr. Kruger, who's uh, at one of the um, Baptist seminaries, said this, many of those who deconvert have realized a newfound calling to share their testimony with as many people as possible, rather than just quietly leaving their old beliefs and moving on to new ones something that would have been more common in prior generations. A new guard seems to have made it their life's ambition 
to evangelize not the lost, but the found. So he talks about, um, in his writings, what he calls kind of a playbook of deconversion. Basically five steps that people go through. And you probably are familiar with this if you've known or read about anyone that's kind of made a change on some of these more controversial cultural issues that the culture has pushed and they've kind of caved. They've rewritten literally what the church has believed for 2,000 years. Sadly, even denominations have done this. But the steps go like this. One, you recount the negatives of your fundamentalist past. You recount the negative. So you hear about people talk about the narrow-mindedness of people. Uh, people are, you can't ask questions. Uh, you, you're not allowed to ask questions. You're afraid to ask questions. You only get pat answers. Uh, we don't acknowledge gray areas. Well, that might be some people's experience. I'm not doubting that. Um, but I've yet to meet a pastor or a leader who's encouraged any of the above. I know I'd say about 20 pastors that if I called them up on the phone and said my name, uh, they'd recognize my name and know me, all right? Not like we're great friends or something, but about 20 pastors, okay? At least acquaintances. None of those men that I know um, shy away from tough questions. None of those people are afraid to have questions thrown at them. None of them, if any of their members are doubting, do they uh, scowl at them or wag their finger at them or do anything like that. Um, One of the things that we've tried to do, and it actually has been kind of fun the last couple years at uh, summer camp, we've set aside a couple hours on one of the days where anyone can come during that time um, and ask me any questions. And and it usually ends up being, a you know, I I don't know, uh, a medium-sized group of people that are just kind of throwing questions. It's like Stump the Pastor or something like that, okay? Because they ask some pretty tough and good questions. But the point is we're trying to provide a place where the youth know that they can ask those questions, that we're not afraid of those questions, and we want to also show them that there's answers to their questions. So we're not afraid of the questions. We give a platform to it. Now, all of us, all of us should be this way when it comes to questions. And listen, Um, I've been stumped. You've probably been stumped, too. That should never have us shy away from wanting to answer questions or being uh, having an unwillingness to even field questions. Um, It's a knock to your pride, of course, if you don't know the answer. Uh, But that's that's okay because a little bit of humility is is good for all of us. Um, Actually, I believe when we acknowledge. Uh, if we're getting a couple questions thrown at us and then we acknowledge, hey, I'm not actually sure, that's a great question, I actually believe it lends credibility to our answers to the other questions because it shows we're not just trying to have all the answers to everything and we're not just making stuff up and we're not just trying to blow smoke. It shows, wow, this person's being honest and real. They've answered these questions and then they realize, man, they need to do a little more homework there. I appreciate that. So they're being real, they're being honest. So it can actually lend credibility uh, to our position when we do that. It also does show that, that we're humble enough to acknowledge that we don't have all the answers. So that's uh, the first step. 
recount the negatives of your fundamentalist past. Two, position yourself as the offended party who bravely fought the establishment. You know, I fought the law, but the law didn't win. (laughs) Everyone loves the underdog. Everyone loves the underdog. When the bases are loaded in the bottom of the ninth, unless it's the Cardinals, um, you're rooting for the team that's behind. All right? You want to see the hero rise up and be the hero in that moment. We love the underdog. But sometimes these people will use words like, uh, their experience was scary or disorienting or crushing or devastating. And they make themselves out to be the oppressed minority fighting against the establishment. And today, authority, I'll talk about it in future weeks, but today, authority, establishment, authoritarianism, any type of authority, it's, like, it's almost like we've jumped back and are repeating the history of the 60s and 70s when it was kind of like the phrase was, if you're over 30, we're not going to listen to you. I mean, now it's just question all authority, regardless of the age or the position. They paint themselves to be the victim. Oh, the victim of what? Well, we're not sure, but they are the victim, and they make it clear. Three, portray your opponents as overly dogmatic while you're just a seeker. Think about that for a second. You know, uh, Look how stringent and dogmatic they are. I'm just seeking the truth. I'm just, I'm just seeking. What's offensive in our culture? Certainty. Certainty is offensive in our culture. You can be certain of it. The quickest way to a successful deconversion story, then, is to admit you used to commit this cardinal sin of certainty, but now you know better. But what's the message? <clears throat> certainty is not consistent with the way religion works. All of us who have a deep conviction about the truth of our beliefs just need to realize how wrong we are. It turns out we can't really be certain about what Scripture teaches after all. That's really the message. There's a number of problems with this position, by the way, friends. First, it's self-contradictory. Is the person certain this is the way Christianity and religion in general works? They're dogmatic in their criticism of our dogmatism. Not only that, but usually the person is quite certain about what the Bible teaches on a number of things, and they're more than happy to inform us of their new found beliefs. Step four, insist your new theology is driven by the Bible and is not a rejection of it. You know, you'll hear people say, "I've, I've done rigorous study. I've researched it for a long time. It is like the trump card that people play. I have people play it on me um, on somewhat of a regular basis. It's like as if studying um, something long enough means you're right. Well, people have studied uh, contradicting positions for years and years and decades and decades, and they can't both be right. So you can study something all you want. Um, Just because you study it, maybe you're more informed on the position. Maybe you can make a better conclusion Uh, that doesn't mean, though, that you are right in your position. So sometimes when people say they've been studying something for, you know, I've been studying this for five years. Well, that sounds impressive. But that just might mean it took you five years to read two books. Okay? That's not very impressive. So usually if I'm feeling a little more edgy at the time, I'll usually push back on people if if they kind of play that card. I mean, how many books did you read? 
I mean, how long have you really been studying it? What articles have you looked at? Did you look at both sides of that uh, issue you're studying? Did you read the pros from this side? Did you read the pros from that? I mean, did you really study it? Or just read what you wanted to read? But it's always, oh, that, this is what the Bible says, you know. Step five, attack the character of your old group and uplift the character of your new group. Uh, Dr. Kruger says, the final step in the deconversion playbook is to attack the character of the group you left while upholding the goodness and integrity of the new group you've joined. You know, they're unloving, unkind, uncharitable, you know, un, 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 and so on. Um, a lot of times this, this rhetoric is so uncharitable and over the top. Uh, I have no doubt, though, there's churches like that. I really do. Um, I've heard of churches like that. I've never been in a church like that. I've never talked to anyone who's been to a church like that. Um, here's the thing. <clears throat> it's amazing that our colleges and our universities pride themselves on knowledge and intellect. I went to the University of Missouri-Columbia, and usually we were just taught this is the way it is. This is, this is the truth, and if you don't believe it, you're an idiot. Okay. <clears throat> that doesn't sound very open-minded to me, right? I mean, if you want to have a conversation, if we're trying to get to the <clears throat> universe, which really is just Latin for two different words, one truth, if we're trying to get to truth itself, then it seems like you have to have a discussion about things that are true, and you have to have a discussion when we're discussing controversial topics of the different opinions out there. But my experience for college and everything I've read and everything and everyone I've talked to with different college students is that the professors are pretty close-minded. They're, they're pretty narrow-minded. And what I've seen is this. Here's what happens. So uh, I go from this place where oh, you're supposed to be open-minded and you're too narrow-minded. You're supposed to be open-minded. You're supposed to be willing to consider new ideas and thoughts. Then I go to seminary, a conservative seminary, and guess what my experience was? The exact opposite. We, they actually made us read books contrary to the position of the seminary. When we studied a topic, we looked at what everyone thought on those things. Here's, here's this opinion, here's that opinion, here's this opinion. Now, I was very thankful that they said, and here's why we think this opinion is right. But they exposed us to a wide variety of opinions. Why? Because they were pretty confident that their position was right. And guess what? When you, when you have the truth, and when you're confident in that, then you shouldn't be afraid of dissenting opinions. Usually the ones that want to shut down the conversation aren't actually very confident in their position. Or maybe they've not even actually been exposed to other positions. Maybe they don't even know their position enough to defend it well enough. So ironically, <clears throat> this conservative seminary I went to was actually quite open-minded and exposed us to a variety of beliefs on theological topics. They wanted their future pastors that they were training to be well-trained. The Barna Group, maybe you've heard of, they do a lot of research and studies regarding different Christian topics and uh, people's views on, on Christianity and certain things in Christianity. Well, recently they did a study on evangelism. 
And they talked to, I think it was like a thousand Christians or something like that. Um, and they broke it down into uh, four categories, millennials, Gen X, boomers, and then the elders. <clears throat> Those are like the really old people. <laughs> I didn't even know that was like a category, <laughs> but it is. So here, here's, where, here's what some of the questions were. Um, part of my faith, this is them talking to Christians, and they had a little definition for what was Christian. Part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. You know, so do you agree or disagree? Uh, 96% of millennials, 97% Gen X, 95% boomers, 95% elders all agreed with that. Yeah, that's, that's good, right? Next, the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. Millennials, 94%. Look, that's good. Gen X, 97%. Boomers, 97%. Elders, 97%. Next question, when someone raises questions about faith, I know how to respond. What do you think, where do you think the millennials were at? 86%. All right, so they're, they're pretty confident, maybe overconfident, I don't know. Gen X, 90%, boomers, 92%, elders, 89%. Uh, then look at this, I am gifted at sharing my faith with other people. Millennials, 73%. Then it drops down, Gen X, 66%. Boomers, 59%. Elders, 56%. All right? The elders and boomers are probably being the most honest. <laughs> then, <clears throat> last question. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. What do you think millennials were at? 47%. 47%. Now, keep in mind, the second question was, the best thing that could ever happen is for someone to come to know Jesus. Right? 94%. But then it, it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes they will one day share the same faith. Millennials, 47%. Gen X, 27%. Boomers, 19%. Elders, 20%. That's not good. That's not good. Look, this, this is the spirit of the age. You believe what you believe. I, I'll, I'll be happy to share with you what I believe, but if you don't want to believe it, that's okay. That's the spirit of the age. Don't force religion on people. Don't ask for commitment. Don't ask for change. Look back in Acts chapter 4, though. Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. <clears throat> I mean, what are the different options for understanding this verse? I mean, seriously. What are the different options? I mean, and there is salvation in no one else. That's how the verse starts. I mean, can we be saved any other way? I mean, this verse is saying no. There's really no options. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I mean, how many ways can you understand that verse? You can only be saved by one name. I mean, can you understand it any other way? Can you read this first and think, 
oh, well, you can trust in Krishna and be saved. You can trust in Buddha and be saved. Now, there's one name. One name. How many names? One. His name is Jesus. That is the name by which we can be saved. That is the name by only which we can be saved. That's how statements of fact work. It's either true or it isn't true. Look at John. Keep your finger in Acts because we'll probably come back to it. But look at John chapter 14. Verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Did he say a way? No, he said the way. Did he say a truth? No, he said the truth. Did he say a life? No, the life. All right? And I've looked at it in the Greek. And it says the same thing. I don't know why people are like, well, let's look at it in the Greek. Let's look at it. I'm like, the English people did a really great job. All right? We have amazing commentators out there and translators that have far more knowledge than we have. I'm all about looking in the Greek. You guys know that. But sometimes I'm just like, um, if it was going to say something different, they'd put it there. All right? At least in a little footnote or something. So, yes, those definite articles... I am the way and the truth. And those definite articles, the, little English lesson, um, those are there in the Greek. All right? There's no questions left. So there's no denying the truth claims that Jesus makes. We got just, just two options. True? False. All right? And God has given to his bride... That's us. He's given us the truth. He's given us his word. And here's the thing. is We're going to be talking about go in mission. That's kind of the second part of the go. We've been looking at service, but we're going to be looking at go in mission. And <clears throat> Christians, when it comes to us with the truth, Christians in general do not evangelize. They don't witness much, if ever. You, if you want to make someone, if you want to make a believer feel bad, there's just two questions you can ask: How many people have you witnessed to this week? How much time have you spent in prayer this week? All right, because those are areas we don't do that great in. Christians don't witness much, if ever, and most church members believe in evangelism, but most church members. Don't do evangelism. And we love evangelism as long as someone else is doing it. And we love the idea of evangelism much more than we love evangelism. Well, guess what? Let's repent of that mindset. Let's repent of it. We had a guest uh, a while back. I I talked to him after church. And um, he said he was looking for... (laughs) an agnostic church. And I was like, I mean, it caught me off guard, but I never heard those two terms put together like that. So I was like, I'm like, um, how'd you find our church? (laughs) 
He's like, I, did, I Googled you. <laughs> I Googled agnostic church, and we were the first hit. <laughs> don't try to, don't do it right now. You can do it later, but we have not been able to reproduce that result in Google, okay? <clears throat> but I kind of scratched my head because I was like, um, I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> so I was, as I got to talk to him a little more, he's like, I want to go to a church where uh, they, they don't believe Jesus is God. And I was like, um, friend, you're going to have a hard time finding a church like that. Because that's kind of like the definition of a church is you're going to find believers there. And believers believe that Jesus is God. <clears throat> so anyway, we talked for a little bit. I offered to get together with him. I said, you got some good questions. We could Let's work through some of those questions. I believe there's answers, right? No need to fear the questions. Um. We, we have to be willing to engage people. Not just here. That's great, man. I heard about a church yesterday. They said anytime a new person comes in, it's like almost guaranteed that person is, is not going to leave without someone sharing the gospel with them, talk to them about salvation. Like that, that would be a great place for us to get to. That's the culture of evangelism that we've talked about. But we believe in evangelism but we don't practice it, we got to change that. So we got to take ownership in this church. Why? Because this is God's church. All right? This is God's church. He owns it. It's his. But you know what else? It's your church. All right? It's your church. Because you've covenanted with the other members to do life together. And you've covenanted with the other members to come and be a local assembly of God's people. So you have ownership. Now whose job is it to go and be a witness? Whose job? I'm asking y'all. All right, everyone, is that what you guys are saying? It is everyone's job, but whose job is it to go? Whose job is it to go and share? Because I think we're going to just keep saying everyone. Because that's the answer you think I want you to say. But it's really not. Because everyone is very general and very specific. And I think it removes the burden from us individually. Who's supposed to go share? Everyone. Well, I know I'm part of everyone. But really, when we ask the question, whose job is it to go and be a witness? The answer is mine. Mine. Okay. That removes it from the nebulous everyone and places the responsibility where it needs to be. So whose job is it to go and be a witness? Good. Good. Lord, whose job is it to go and be a witness? Good job. You're like, I caught you there. <laughs> Steve Inman, whose job is it to go and be a witness? Sean? Jeff Kodak, awesome, that's right, and it's mine too, it is all of ours. Look, witnessing is challenging, I get it. Um, Life is challenging, right? Even what Mike was sharing for his offering exhortation, like we have storms, we have challenges, we have trials, we have afflictions, but God walks with us through that. 
And I'm hoping in the coming weeks to share some very encouraging stories about what God does when we will take that step of faith and open our mouth. Um, We went through that book. It has a really amazing title to it called Evangelism about two years ago. And uh, Max Stiles is the author of that book. And that's where he talks about the culture of evangelism. He's uh, written, actually, a number of books uh, on this subject. He's kind of, I mean, he's kind of, I look up to him because he is very bold with his faith. And I appreciate him basically willing to risk almost basically everything to share with people in this country and outside of this country. Some crazy stuff. But here's what um, he was asked one time. Um, How would you encourage someone who wants to become better at sharing Christ with people? He says, this may be the easiest question. And as tempted as I am to say that the way to become better in evangelism is to read my book, (laughs) really the way to be better in evangelism is to do it. We need practice. It's like marriage. For all the books written about marriage, the best way to learn about marriage is to get married. The second thing, notice this, the second thing is, and we don't like this word, most of us, but the second thing is to risk. Everywhere I go, people want to know why they aren't having opportunities to share their faith. And my answer in most situations is that they take more risks. He goes on, talk to the mom next to to you at soccer practice. Let people know at work about your Christian life. Get your courage up at school and see if a friend would read the Gospel of Mark with you. It's no good waiting around until the culture gets easier. It's not going to anytime soon. And it gets harder in life too, but God rewards risk. It's really tied up in faith, he says. I tell people that if you can't risk, you better find another God to love besides Jesus If you think about it, we are really risking our life that the message of the gospel is true. And if it's true, it's worth risking what others think about us to share that truth. All right, so first thing he says, do it. Second thing, risk. Listen, if we want to be witnesses, if we want to practice evangelism, Guess where it starts? Evangelism starts in the mirror. When you wake up in the morning, and the first thing you see looking in that mirror in the bathroom is pretty little you. What do I mean evangelism starts in the mirror? You need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. You need to remind yourself of what Christ did for you. That truth should go with you and be with you every day. You shouldn't have to come to church. You shouldn't have to have a quiet time to have that truth with you and to be reminded of it. So you need to remind yourself of what God has done for you and you and you. Because if you don't believe the gospel, if you don't practice the gospel, there's not going to be any benefit to others when it comes to the gospel. It'll be the blind leading the blind. 
you got to remind yourself of how precious and sweet that good news is to you. Not how precious and sweet the good news was to you when you got saved. That's true. But how precious the good news is to you. All right? Is it precious? Is it sweet? Yes. So remind yourself of that. Remind yourself of the goodness of God. And here's the thing. If you don't think you need the gospel, then you won't think others need the gospel. If you're not thinking about the gospel, you're not going to be thinking of gospel-oriented things. If you don't believe how desperately you need the gospel, you won't believe that others desperately need the gospel. Here's the thing, friends. We have to go to grow. We have to go to grow. First, grow ourselves spiritually. I think if we are honest, we will admit when we share our faith, God uses that in our own life. Even some of the times where I've totally messed up that situation. remember one time sharing with a guy in a hardware store. I forgot Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Like, how do you forget Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? But I forgot it. Here I am trying to remember that verse. And I'm like, as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, <laughs> I was like frozen. Thankfully, someone else was with me, and they gave me like the first couple verses. <clears throat> but even in those moments, God uses that. He uses it to grow us. So we have to go to grow. That's the first part. The second is we have to go to grow this church. Now, that's not why we go. We go because we're, and we'll look at that in the future weeks, okay? But if we want God's visible representation on this earth, which is the local church, if we want his bride right here, then we have to go to grow, all right? <clears throat> um, we can use ads and flyers and put a banner on our building. I mean, we can do all those things, and, and we should. Um, but that's not God's means of evangelism. It's us, all right? It's us. And the last time I checked... Like we, we call them chairs now. I actually had to explain to my kids the other day what, what a pew was. Right? Usually pew, you're like that, right? Okay. <clears throat> but I had to explain to them. But like these are the chairs, right? And like last time I checked, like, you know, people just don't grow up from the chairs. Right? Believers just don't sprout out of the chairs. There's no, no growth comes from empty chairs. We can, have, we can have more and more chairs in this place. That doesn't mean more and more people are going to come. They're going to come as we go and are faithful to be witnesses. So we have to go if we want to grow personally and with the body of Christ. So I think some of this gets back to where we're at with Jesus. Like where's our heart at with Jesus? And I think... I think many of us are fine with Jesus, like being in the same room with him. We're fine with knowing he's around. That's enough. But 
like the pictures that we get in scripture, I mean, think about the disciples and think about even the crowds. It, it really wasn't enough just to be in the same room. They wanted to be like right next to him. You know, they wanted to be sitting at his feet learning. And, and some people, as you know, took drastic measures to get to be with Jesus. You know, tearing holes in roofs to let people down. But, 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 but what about us? Like, what about us? Like, let's move past any contentment of just like, oh, I'm, I'm good, I'm safe, man, I, got, I punched my ticket to heaven. Like, let's be real with us and Jesus. Let's get back to his heart. Let's get back to him. Because maybe some of us kind of wandered away. I mean, the answer to maybe our lack of desire, in part, is going to be our lack of desire for the Lord. Really, is just kind of how it is. So, <clears throat> let's stop settling, I guess is my point, for second best. We have the best available to us, Jesus. Like, he's the best. He's the best. And sometimes we settle for second best, or third best, or fifth best, or tenth best, or hundredth best, with all sorts of things. But we have Jesus. Why would we settle for anything less? And as our hearts become more tuned to his heart, we start to get some answers for our issues in our personal lives, but also for this answer with evangelism and being witnesses and being bold and stepping out in faith. So let's get back to Jesus. Let's repent where we need to. Let's seek him. And let's be willing to take steps. Let's be willing to take risks for him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for each believer here. I pray that you would give each one of us a spirit of boldness, a spirit to open our mouth, a spirit to engage people, a willingness to step out trusting you, Lord. Make us witnesses for you. Some of us We just don't do good in this area. We confess that. We admit it. We repent of it. You call us to be witnesses. I pray for each person here that in the next week you'd give them an opportunity to share the gospel. That they would take that risk. That they would walk through an open door. It really is a privilege, Lord, to be your ambassador, to be your spokesperson, to be your mouthpiece. Let's take advantage, Lord, while we still have time and press upon us the direness of the situation of people's status of their souls. And let us love them, Lord, to speak truth. Father, we thank you for the salvation we have through your Son. It truly is a gift the gift of eternal life. 
Lord, let us delight in sharing that gift with others. And speaking in truth and compassion to others. Use us. Use us, Lord. Amen.